Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Well, I know I'm doing well because we are going to be talking about some of my favorite plants in the entire plant kingdom, the parasites. Now, of course, parasites is not a family, genus, or species of plants. It's a lifestyle that's cropped up amongst a bunch of different groups. And to study the interactions and how much they parasitize their hosts and how it might have evolved is a fascinating realm of scientific inquiry. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Caitlin Kahn. Broadly speaking, her research falls under two big questions. How do parasites perceive their hosts? And what determines the range of host preferences that different parasitic plants can take? Most of her work focuses on the family Orobancaceae, which produces some of the most beautiful parasites, in my opinion, and her research gives us wonderful insights into the evolution of this lifestyle, not only within this family, but across all of the parasitic plants we can find on this planet. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Caitlin Kahn. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Caitlin Kahn, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about your research today, but first let's introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me today. It is great to be here. This is my first ever podcast, so I'm really excited. (laughs) So (laughs) my name is Caitlin Kahn, and I just finished my second year as a biology professor at Barry College, which is a school in Northwest Georgia. And my research primarily focuses on parasitic plants for right now. So to give you a little bit of my backstory, like many young science enthusiasts, when I headed off to college at Penn State, I thought that I was going to be a medical doctor, Hmm. but I wound up in a research lab and I absolutely loved it. And so that kind of changed my career trajectory. And I thought that I really wanted to research infectious diseases forever. Those were really the things that grabbed my attention and Mm. got me excited. And in the meantime, in between undergrad and grad school, I was a technician for a year in a lab that studies plants and specifically chemical signaling in plants. And that is Dave Nelson's lab. He is at UC Riverside now, but he was in Georgia at the time. And he had the coolest project that he was starting on parasitic plants. And (laughs) what I loved about it was I really love animals. It's hard for me to even kill insect pests in my house. And so (laughs) studying infectious diseases was going to be a challenge in that regard because I would have to work with animals. Mm. With parasitic plants, you get to study a lot of the same principles that apply to infectious diseases, other host parasite or host pathogen systems, but it's all in plants. (laughs) A little bit more manageable, I guess, if, uh, you know, you worry about things with eyes. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. That is awesome. And what a cool segue into the world of plants to kind of be able to maintain that interest and that passion you originally had. You know, it's it's a really interesting thing to hear about, like sort of same dynamics, different system. But yeah, parasitic plants. I mean, there's so many doors to unlock on that one. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, prior to joining this lab for grad school, I didn't really consider myself a plant person. And in between grad school and now, I did a couple of really fun postdocs but they were on fungi or insects and I really missed plants. So it's good to be back in the world of plants. Wow. So you've actually bounced around quite a bit in your research trajectory. I mean, that's, uh, you don't hear that a lot, especially as like you start to focus in grad school and then postdocs pretty much nail you into place oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But with both postdocs, the goal was still studying host parasite Mm. systems, just not in plants. So it wasn't such a huge leap. Right on. So it really is this dynamic between host and parasite that fascinates you the most. And plants, like you kind of outlined there, are a really interesting system to study that in, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's cool because there are quite a few parasitic plants, at least around me in Georgia, but wherever Mm -hmm. you live, you can probably find some. So they're pretty available as a study system. And so... It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like pointing them out to people because if you're not familiar with the botanical world, the idea of a parasitic plant kind of you can see the gears start turning in their head. They're like, what? But before we jump into like the plant aspect of this, what is it exactly about this host parasite dynamic that interests you? I mean, there's probably a lot of facets to it, of course. Uh, but what, what really kind of attracts you to this sort of concept or, or realm of, of study? So there's not necessarily a single answer to that. that, You know, when I was a kid, I was reading some of these books that were coming out at the time about these terrifying infectious diseases. And I was just so fascinated by this war almost between a host and something that's using the host to its advantage. And I think that really studying the long-term evolution between parasites and their hosts is what is so interesting for me. And with parasitic plants, there are some really unique aspects of that relationship that are not necessarily found in other host parasite systems. And we can get into that a little bit later. But another thing that I think is so interesting about this type of relationship is that we like to categorize these long-term symbiotic relationships between organisms. So, you know, with symbiosis, we're just talking about organisms living in close proximity to each other, probably affecting one another and that relationship going on across generations. And so we like to categorize those long-term coevolutionary interactions as Mutualisms, where both partners benefit, commensalism, where one benefits and one is really not affected, and parasitism, where one benefits and one is harmed. But those are somewhat arbitrary categories. (laughs) In reality, these relationships don't fit neatly into these little boxes. So that's one thing that I think is really fun to examine as well, Um, just the fact that every now and then a parasite might be helping its host or... On the flip side, every now and then a mutualist might be harming its host. So um, exceptions to the rule are really fun to find. Oh, biology, ecology, they're full of them. And that's cool. I'm really happy you brought that up because even in my head, I bin them very neatly into, oh, no, this is obvious. But it's it's like a, a lot of things. It's a whole spectrum of possibilities with, like you said, plenty of exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes it so fun. Awesome. So. 
since this is a plant podcast and you happen to be really focused on parasitic plants these days, I think it would be worth uh, kind of taking a step back and just thinking about what parasitic plants are. Because as we kind of had earlier in our correspondence uh, pointed out, is a lot of people look at a lot of interactions among plants and might go, oh, that's negative, therefore it's a parasite. But there, there has to be some, I guess, dynamic, specific types of dynamics for that definition to hold true, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just talking about these categories of symbiotic relationships and parasitism is one of them. And typically parasitism is just defined as a symbiotic relationship where one member benefits and the other is harmed. But when we're in the world of parasitic plant research, we get a little bit stricter with (laughs) our definitions. And so there's this conception that any plant that harms another plant, especially if it's using that plant to gain an advantage, might be a parasite. So in the South where I live, we have kudzu and it grows on top of other plants Mm. like trees It grows on road signs. And so people assume that it's a parasite because it's climbing on trees, for example, to get sunlight and it's harming the tree in the process. But when we're talking about parasitic plants as the field of parasitic plant research knows them, we're talking about plants that are physically connected to another plant in such a way that they can steal nutrients or other resources. And so typically they are doing that through this special invasive structure they have called a hostorium, which either grows out of their roots or their shoots and actually goes in and invades the tissues of a host. There's another group of plants that are sometimes considered parasitic as well, and these are the mycoheterotrophs. So mycoheterotrophs are not directly attached to a host plant, but they are stealing through a fungal intermediate that's Mm -hmm. attached to another plant. And so some people consider them parasites, some don't. They're pretty interesting as well, but they're not the focus of my study. Fair enough. And just, you know, before we move away from them, I mean, would you be able to consider them a parasite on the fungus then? Maybe not so much the plant? You know, that's a great question. And I am not sure what the fitness effects on the fungus are. Fair enough. That is a really great question. Yeah. They're so interesting, though. Some of them don't have chlorophyll. They're stealing all of their sugars through that fungal intermediate. And a lot of orchids are mycoheterotrophs at some <laughs> point in life. Are you an orchid person? I, yeah, I'm a huge orchid nut. I mean, they were my gateway, I guess, into like real plant obsession. So yeah, finding them, seeing some of those mycoheterotrophs in person were like highlights of my botanizing experiences. Yeah, they're wild. They are so strange looking in some cases. It's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to the other realm of this where plants are direct parasites on other plants, you mentioned this organ called the haustorium, and it can, from my understanding, come from, like you said, stems, shoots, there's a lot of different areas. And I was recently showing someone daughter and showing them how daughter and I, you know, was like, oh, this one actually has no roots. It's totally plugged in with those haustoria into the stem of surrounding plants. But then they said, well, Isn't that kind of like a root? And I didn't know how to answer that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. So there are parasitic plants that are stem parasites that attach above grounds like daughter. You can 
pretty clearly see those connections. And then there are some that attach underground. The family that I primarily study attaches underground directly onto host roots. And so in the case of root parasites, the hostoria are growing out of their own roots. As far as the ones that attach above ground, it's kind of analogous to a root, right? In that <laughs> this connection, we've got important resources coming in, but I believe that the developmental programming for it is mm. distinct from what plants would use for roots. Okay. So it really comes down to those sort of pathways of, of how those tissues form and what they're forming from. Yeah, that's definitely one way to define the structures. Fair enough. And again, I'm a novice over here when it comes to this sort of stuff. So uh, uh, excuse some of my weird definitions and links. <laughs> no, that is okay. And the stem parasites are a group that I'm not as familiar with either. Fair enough. And so let's talk a little bit more about these root parasites because that's your familiarity. But I think that, you know, unless you live in an area with like a ton of mistletoe, for instance, you're probably more likely, at least where I live and where I've worked, to encounter uh, some form of root parasite, uh, whether you realized it or not, because some of them can be very distinct, I guess, kind of like the mycoheterotrophic plants. They look pretty parasitic, but then there's some that are doing it and you would never know without sort of digging them up and looking, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The root parasites can be hard to identify that way in that like you said, with the daughter, you can see it clearly connected to a host above ground. Uh, but with the root parasites, you're not always going to be aware of that. So there are root parasites and shoot parasites like daughter that lack chlorophyll or have very low levels of it. And in those cases, they tend to have reduced structures. So like daughter without its roots, there are some root parasites that have leaves that are just reduced to little scales. Hmm. And so when you see one like that, especially one that's not photosynthesizing, it's pretty easy to say, okay, this has to be some sort of a parasite because it's not green. It doesn't have these structures that would be really important for photosynthesis. But for other plants, the connections happen below ground. And some of these parasites can photosynthesize just fine. And some of them can get through their life cycle, at least in a lab where conditions are <laughs> ideal without a host plant present. So they'll take advantage of one if one is available in nature they are usually hooked up with host plants, but they don't necessarily look unusual in that they are photosynthetic and it can be easy to miss the fact that they're parasites. Yeah, I love this, again, the spectrum of possibilities among this group because, you know, not that it's a single lineage either, um, but it, you just get to see sort of these gradations and how these interactions can play out. And obviously no one can really know without finding like fossils or tracing through the genetic relations and programming, but you can kind of imagine how parasitism might have evolved over time, sort of the stepwise from occasionally when things get tough, I can plug into this is the only way I can live. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for sure, this sort of um, pattern of loss over evolutionary time is something that we see 
in parasites and even mutualists that have reliable access to a host generation after generation. So some of these parasitic plants through their evolution have simply lost a lot of what they would need in order to survive on their own. And presumably, lost those things with little consequence because they had hosts available all the time. So not only are these structures often reduced or absent, like leaves and roots, as we pointed out, sometimes chlorophyll is absent or present in extremely low levels. And sometimes they are missing genes that we typically huh. find in other plants. Well, it's kind of this uh, concept of use it or lose it, as my grad school advisor used to like to say, nice. where, you know, random mutations can occur in these genes that control these structures or processes. And if those structures and processes aren't necessary, then those mutations have no consequence. Over time, they accumulate by chance, but they're not selected against if the processes and structures they're controlling aren't being used. And then things get lost. Hmm. I just endless hours of like sitting down and thinking about this stuff. It's so interesting and there's so many avenues to look at it. But, you know, thinking about the average person walking around the woods, I learned parasitic plants through taxonomy. I said, OK, this is a member of this family. Therefore, it's probably doing that. But what amazes me is at some point someone had to dig that up figure out that those roots are touching not by happenstance <laughs> you know and so without some sort of familiarity with taxonomy or, or field botany i mean is there a way to look at a plant and go like oh that's a root parasite if it's not one of those hyper specific lost features type of plant or is it just kind of we had to know by digging it up and that's how we know yeah, I mean, I think that your method is probably the best <laughs> method. Getting familiar with some of the families, the family that I study is called the Orobanchaceae, for example, and a lot of members of that family are parasitic. But otherwise, I don't know of a great way to just take a walk in the woods and find a photosynthetic parasite and know that that's what it is for me. Because there's this one family that I focus on, I just started Googling what species from the Orobanchaceae were in my area and then kept an eye out for them when I was in the woods. And that's how I found them. And now I can show them to other people. Nice. But yeah, I would not necessarily know how to go to a new area and identify parasites if they're photosynthesizing. Right, right. Yeah, because again, I mean, most of these you would... If you're familiar, you know, but they're just, hey, that's a cool plant. You know, There's nothing like yeah. weird necessarily about it. I have heard one story from my friend Mark uh, that at least if you live in a desert area, it's a little bit easier because he said they would go around and touch their lips to the leaves of these plants. And if it was the heat of the day and they were cool, they were probably transpiring. And it at least gave you a, an idea that they might be stealing water from somewhere else because every other plant had shut down at that point. But I think that's really like habitat specific. I like that method though. Uh, yeah. 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 And and that brings up a great point that, you know, parasitic plants have big impacts on the communities where they live, not always bad impacts, um, but by transpiring throughout the day at times when other plants would have that shut down, they're affecting water availability and taking water from a host. So that's a great point to bring up. 
Right. And that's a perfect segue for this because, I mean, the whole point of parasitism is something's getting taken. And, you know, when people hear parasite, I think their brains instantly go to like human gut parasites or, you know, tapeworms, something something like that. And, And for good reason, you get pretty squeamish. I mean, the thought of something living inside of you, stealing from you is a little invasive, I guess. But, um, you know, this concept can be stretched out across all sort of host parasite interactions. As you said, part of the definition is one is harmed, but it's never as we're going to reiterate throughout this entire conversation. It's never that simple. So let's kind of dive into it. I mean, obviously there are negative consequences of parasitism for organisms, which can scale up to human societies. If you're thinking in the context of like agriculture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk (laughs) for hours about the negative (laughs) consequences, but you're right. There are, there are positive consequences of having certain parasitic plants around as well. Should we start with the positive? Let's end on a high note. So let's start okay. with the obvious negative stuff. Um, and, and the thing I'm more interested in rather than being like, it reduces crop yields, you know, the, the kind of like we know. But uh, the, the more concept of like, okay, you have the spectrum of possible parasitic strategies. Some are probably stealing more than others. Like you said, some can be facultative about it. Others obligate. So I, I would guess like the negatives really, it's a factor of what the plant is and, and how dependent it is on that parasitic interaction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, right, parasitic plants do vary in their dependence on a host and in their effects on a host, for sure. And so, as you pointed out, with parasitism, by definition, somebody is being harmed, right? And so, Parasitic plants, of course, evolved in natural ecosystems, and we can see their effects on their hosts in natural ecosystems, but in agricultural systems is where they have received the most attention. And so if we want to talk about a couple of specific examples in agriculture, we can go there. But I think that the whole occurrence of parasitic plants in agricultural systems is really fascinating because agriculture hasn't been around that long. Mm. And so one thing that I think is really fascinating is this concept of host range and host preference. So Mm. how many different hosts a parasite can use and of all those possible hosts, which one it's going to use most often or which one it's going to benefit from the most. And so looking at adaptation to agriculture is a really interesting place to see these examples of host switching. So if Hmm. we want to talk about um, some of that and some specific examples of damage to hosts, you know, in agriculture, we see lots of different parasites from different families um, harming their hosts. And a lot of times the damage that they do to their hosts can be disproportionately large relative uh, to their size. And so uh, the parasites that tend to get talked about in the context of agriculture tend to be the pretty bad ones that are really, really harmful to their hosts. And so we can talk about why they're difficult to control. Um, that's an interesting topic to dive into, but just talking about what they do to their hosts. 
So in agriculture, we have parasites that we call weeds because they are attacking crops that are cultivated by humans. And some of the really nasty ones that we might be familiar with are the Striga species, which mm. are called weeds, and then Orobanki and Philopanki, which are referred to as broom rapes, and they're in the same family. And so in terms of what these parasites are taking from their hosts, the Striga species are actually hemiparasites. Okay. So they are photosynthesizing, but they're not able to get through their life cycle without a host. Oh. So they're sort of this in-between between the photosynthesizing parasites that can live on their own and the non-photosynthetic ones that cannot. They're photosynthetic, can't live on their own. Hmm. And they're root parasites, so they germinate underground, they latch onto a host pretty quickly, and just a few millimeters of shoot growth in a striga parasite can reduce the biomass of sorghum, which is a host for striga, by 30x. <laughs> so the damage they're causing can be really big. Wait, <laughs> relative so when you say millimeters, you mean like the shoot extends a few millimeters and we see that much damage? Yes. Wow. Yes. So yeah, so for these root parasites that are occurring in agricultural systems, they tend to be very virulent, causing a lot of harm to their hosts. And because they're attaching underground after germination, by the time you even see them above the soil surface, it's often too late hmm. to prevent them from damaging their hosts irreversibly. That's intense. I mean, what is it about those millimeters of growth? I mean, is it injecting something into the plant? Like what's going on to cause that much damage? Or are we still trying to figure that out? So I think that is definitely an area of active research, hmm. but there are a few things known about how the parasites can affect their hosts. So for one thing, they can steal nutrients and other resources and use them inefficiently. So the loss of biomass from a host is going to be greater than the addition of biomass to the parasite mm. in a lot of cases, right? So they're, they're taking more than they're actually using, but they can also affect the development and the architecture and the physiology of their hosts in other ways. So for example, parasitic plants can produce hormones and send them into a host or they can stimulate the production of certain hormones in the host, wow. by the host. They can also do things like deregulate stomatal control in their hosts. So there are a lot of different ways that they can affect their hosts. That is absolutely wild. And you start to imagine a situation where these, some of these evolutionary adaptations for being able to parasitize something can be very specific. I mean, if you're making hormones or trying to induce hormones, you would think that like the relationship would at least be at the family level. But you mentioned going into this, that these are interesting cases where oftentimes they're jumping to hosts, potentially new hosts, right? And so that in and of itself is a pretty complex dynamic. Yeah, it is really fascinating because host range tends to be pretty broad in parasitic plants, at least in certain species. Hmm. And when it's not, we can still see cases where parasites are jumping to new hosts. Wow. So as examples of these from the family that I study, you know, striga species, the witch weeds, 
sort of have an intermediate host range and that they are typically parasitizing grass crops, but there are multiple grass crops that they can use as hosts. So it's not the broadest host range you could imagine, but it's not that narrow either. Hmm. The Philippanki and Oribanki species can parasitize a wide variety of important crops like carrots, legumes, tomatoes, tobacco, and then we have some species that tend to specialize on one single host. So there is a species in the Orobankaceae called Orobanki cumana, and it seems to have switched to agricultural hosts relatively recently, mm. but it specializes on sunflower as its host, huh. whereas, yeah. Yeah, so in the fairly recent past, it's thought that its ancestors were parasitizing wild relatives, okay. but pretty recently it has jumped to sunflower. Wow, that is super fascinating. And again, it's unfortunate when you see the detriment to agricultural communities with this, but in terms of like natural experiments that we can study to better understand this stuff and, you know, eventually help people too, uh, those systems have to be like, oh, we got to get on that. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. And there are so many questions that are still open, like the extent to which the hosts evolve in response, exactly how this host switching happens, how the parasites are recognizing specific hosts and mm. rejecting others. There are so many questions that don't have complete answers yet. Right. And it just goes to show you how long these things can remain mysterious despite being you know economically important because generally speaking that's where the money goes for the research but you know nature is very complex as we're beginning to understand here <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely so we do know a little bit about how certain parasitic plants recognize certain hosts like mm. i said it's still a wide open field so you know there are a lot of questions that sure. still need to be answered but for some parasites, there are components of host root exudates that will stimulate germination. Uh -huh. And sometimes the root exudates from a non-host or a not preferred host will not stimulate germination of a particular parasite, whereas the root exudates from an appropriate host uh, will stimulate germination. So that's probably one place where host recognition comes into play. Hmm. That's cool. And so that makes sense because if you're a parasite, your seeds want to germinate in places where they, you know, have the highest potential to make it. And so if it's just kind of doing it like a lot of seeds do, just germinating wherever there's enough water, you might not be able to match up with something you desperately need to complete your life cycle. So that's that's cool to know that it's almost the you know, they're queuing in on something, the smell or the taste of the hosts. Uh, yeah, those are very anthropomorphic. Sorry. It's queuing in on the chemical cues from <laughs> their potential hosts. Yeah. And germination is a really fascinating point of development for plants. And this is what I have primarily studied uh, with regard to parasitic plants. So germination is this point of no return, right? You can hang out in the soil for a while, but once you germinate, you can't go back to being a seed. And so uh, the parasitic plants that I study in the Orbankaceae family are often the ones that cause really severe damage to crops and their seeds can remain dormant in the soil for years, oh. maybe decades, and they will only germinate when they pick up on a specific hormone in uh, the, the root exudates of a nearby plant. 
So that's a really cool adaptation that some of these parasites have to make sure that they only go through that germination stage, that point (laughs) of no return, if there is likely to be a host nearby. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about dormancy, but another component that makes a ton of sense in the context of how these plants have to make a living. Yeah, absolutely. So these parasitic plants that require a host, we call them the obligate parasites, they tend to make maybe tens of thousands of tiny seeds that are very easily to disperse, thousands to tens of thousands of them. But the fact that they're so tiny means that they don't have enough nutrient reserves in them to power the seedling after germination for more than a couple days. And that's a big reason why it's so critical that they only germinate when a host is very nearby. Wow. Yeah. A lot of interplay of different dynamics to consider even in the lifestyle of these. But for the more obligate species, do you see different components of what they're taking? I mean, obviously, if they're not able to photosynthesize, they're probably taking a lot more from their hosts than some of these sort of in-between or facultative type parasites, right? Yeah. So if you are an obligate holoparasite, not photosynthesizing, then yeah, you're going to have to get your products of photosynthesis, your sugars from your host plant. And so that is critical for them to steal so that they can power their own growth and development. And do you see the severity of those relationships sort of playing out much stronger on if, you know, while we're still in the negative side of things in the greater context here? Um, Or is it that these are so dependent on that host that to be hyper extractive or hyper damaging would inevitably hurt their own existence? I mean, good parasites shouldn't kill the things they rely on, right? Yeah. And, you know, that is a great question. I don't have a complete answer to it. That's okay. I think <laughs> I think in that context, it's really interesting to look at wild parasites mm-hmm. in natural ecosystems versus weedy parasites in agricultural systems. Mm. So the ones that tend to be really damaging in agricultural systems, at least in the family that I study, the Orobankaceae, are the obligate parasites that need a host. Okay. They just really destroy their hosts, but some of them are the strigus species that are photosynthesizing to some extent, and they have really, really detrimental effects on their Mm. host. So I'm not sure whether there's a correlation there between whether or not these parasites that require a host are photosynthesizing and the degree of damage that they cause. But what's interesting about agriculture is that artificial selection and the reseeding of fields with maybe a new species or a new seed line kind of prevents crops from co-evolving with Mm. parasitic plants, right? For co-evolution to happen, for crops to adapt to parasites, you'd have to be harvesting seeds from a field, re-sowing them the next year, doing this again and again and again, because evolution requires often many generations to actually produce noticeable differences. So in agriculture, that coevolution doesn't necessarily have a chance to happen. If we look at wild systems, there are plenty of examples of obligate holoparasites that don't photosynthesize and require a host, seemingly not hurting their host all that much. 
So over here in the eastern part of the U.S., we have one called Canophilus Americana. It is, you're, you like Canophilus? Yeah, I like Canophilus a whole lot. I, I made a maneuver for all those listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Canophilus too. It is just a wild looking it little is. planet. Yeah, alien. <laughs> It looks like something from another planet, and it is completely dependent upon its hosts. Those tend to be oak trees or beech trees. And really, the trees don't seem to suffer that much from it. Uh, we have beech drops as well. Beech drops are also non-photosynthetic parasites. I don't think they're quite as strange looking as canopolis. They're <laughs> Fair not enough. Yeah. Uh, but they are also completely dependent on their hosts, beech trees. And again, not necessarily killing the beech trees outright. So that's a great question. I don't know the answer. You know, my inclination is to say that maybe in nature, the hosts have had a chance to co-evolve with the parasites. And so you know, we don't see as high of virulence as we do in agriculture, but that is an untested pet right. hypothesis in my mind. I mean, I think it's a good one. And, and you know, I'm, again, a total novice to this field, but it just in the context of like what we have to do to make agriculture possible versus like nature kind of having time to sort itself out. It makes complete sense that, you know, everything about modern agriculture is going against the grain of how natural systems work because our whole goal is to maximize production, but that is not to maximize necessarily defense against these things that can get into a system that's largely broken and go, let's run amok. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it definitely complicates things or at least complicates the study of the parasites and definitely obscures what might otherwise be going on with the hosts. Right. But at least you study a family that is doing things in nature just as much as it's doing things in agriculture. And I think we spent enough time lamenting about the negative side of parasites because I don't want to give this indication that it's all bad. I love parasites because they obviously play a functional role in ecosystem dynamics. And let's jump into that. And then, of course, we can focus on the system that you study because you're into a really awesome group of plants. This family is one of my favorites. Oftentimes, they're absolutely gorgeous. And when you find them, you know something interesting is happening, at least <laughs> underground, out of sight. But it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So parasitic plants that occur in natural ecosystems are sometimes considered keystone species because they have such tremendous impacts, not only on their host, but on the whole community that they live in. And so I think one important point to make is that parasites, whether they're plants or animals or bacteria or whatever else, are not inherently bad. They're part of our world, they're part of our ecosystems, and they're part of that balance that exists in nature. And so they're not inherently bad. You know, most wild animals live with parasites throughout their entire life. They're just kind of a, a piece of the ecological puzzle and an important piece sometimes. And so if we want to talk about some of the benefits that they have, there are many. Um, let's start with ecological restoration. So there are certain species of parasitic plants that have preferences for hosts that might be competitive dominance in a particular ecosystem. And maybe you want that region to have higher biodiversity 
you can introduce a parasitic plant that parasitizes this dominant species to knock it back a little bit and leave room for other species to grow. So for example, there is a genus of parasite in the family that I study called Rhinanthus. And you can introduce it to maybe a pasture if you want to turn it into more of a natural biodiverse area hmm. and it will parasitize dominant species in a pasture and make room for additional plant species to move in and, and increase the biodiversity of that area. There may be some benefits for fungi and insects in oh. ecosystems as well. So this is something that I haven't seen a whole lot of data on just yet, but actually the weakening of host plants by parasites may enable um, certain things like fungi or insects to better use those host plants. And, you know, fungi and insects are, are dependent on plants, at least in some cases. And so being able to better utilize those weakened host plants can be beneficial for the fungi and the insects. Uh, mistletoe is not in the family that I study, but mistletoe is going to have positive impacts on insects and birds in a forest. Mistletoe is important for pollinators, for example, like seed eating birds. Um, there are mammals that feed on mistletoe. And so um, in that regard, mistletoes can be a really important part of an ecosystem as well. That is awesome to hear because it's not like these plants are just existing in a vacuum themselves. I mean, they're interacting with other parts of the world. And like one of the most common parasites around here, I believe it's an orobankasey, is like what they call like the foxglove mullein, the, the woolly one with these yellow flowers. It's a huge plant, loves disturbance and produces so many inflorescences. And I just like sitting there watching just the sheer amount of pollinators that visit those flowers. So there's definitely a give back in terms of like what it's doing in the greater ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite stories that I read about recently also has to do with mistletoes, but also juniper mm. and a uh, bird. Um, the bird is called the Townsend solitaire. And this is one of those really cool cases where the parasitic organism almost becomes beneficial to the host in certain cases. So if the mistletoe is parasitizing juniper, at a low to intermediate density, then it can actually benefit the juniper because the mistletoe is around for more of the year and it's attracting this bird, this Townsend solitaire to a greater extent than it would be if it was just juniper without mistletoe in the branches. And at low enough density of mistletoe, the juniper can end up benefiting from those extra visits by that seed dispersing bird. So that's a really cool wow. example of how the line between parasitism and mutualism can get blurred. That is fascinating. I never heard of that before. And it, yeah, it's one of those things when you hear about it, you're like, oh, okay, this is definitely one of those gray areas. And you can kind of see how, you know, I'm not saying this is every case, but a, a parasitism could eventually evolve into a mutualism. It just, you know, it reiterates this idea that evolution is not this like directed, we started here and we're aiming for this. It's just how these things can play out. But the idea that it can be low to intermediate, you know, it's not a severe infection. It's this sweet spot that could potentially play out. But that kind of brings up this idea of like, 
you know, one could potentially evolve a way to keep it in check where the other one can kind of over it's that arms race sort of mentality with with sometimes how you get evolution playing out. Yeah, it's so interesting. And the fact that it doesn't fit into a neat box just makes it so much more uh, promising in terms of we're going to keep discovering so much about it because there are these aspects of the relationship that we might not even have considered yet. And so uh, it's it's pretty interesting in that regard. So specifically for your work, I mean, which species are you working on and what kind of questions are you most interested in, you know, recently? I mean, what's kind of gotten your attention in your research over the last couple of years? Yeah. So I'll just take a quick step back to what I did in grad school because it lays the groundwork sure. and, then, and then we'll talk about that. So in grad school, we were focused on how the parasitic plants, the agriculturally destructive ones, find their hosts. And so we were studying a group of genes that we thought might encode proteins that perceive these hormones from host plants. And so that's what we were studying at the time. We discovered that, yes, these genes, they're called Chi2, they do encode proteins that parasitic weeds are using to sense crops and germinate in response. And so these days, I'm looking at these Chi2 genes that we know are important for host interaction in parasitic weeds, but I'm looking at them in wild species mm. because we don't know really anything about wild species and their Chi2 genes. So are they also using them to sense hosts at the germination stage, or is there something else going on there? And really the wild parasites are more of an open field for discovery. Yeah. Understandably, the agriculturally destructive ones have gotten a lot more research attention because they're the ones that are, you know, harming human culture, really. Right. So there's a lot that's not known about the wild parasites. And so how they detect their hosts, if they're detecting their hosts in seed germination, is a big question that my lab is addressing. We're also doing some experiments uh, with actually the false fox gloves that nice. you just mentioned. Yeah, so what's cool about them are there are two genera. There's Agalinus, and its common name is false fox glove. And then there's Ariolaria and its species are often called false fox glove as well. They look pretty similar. Agalinus has purple flowers and Ariolaria has yellow, but they really differ in the hosts that they use. So Agalinus is probably using a wide variety of different non-tree hosts, whereas the Ariolaria that you mentioned with the yellow flowers is typically parasitizing trees, often oak trees. Okay. And so there's this big question of what makes that distinction. They're closely related to each other. They look pretty similar. Why do they differ so strongly in the hosts that they use? So that's something that we are starting to address as well. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of this kind of comes down to looking at sort of transcription and, and genetic differences between them, that, that sort of angle, I guess, on it. 
Yeah, yeah. So that is the plan for the future for those questions. Right now, something else that we're doing that's pretty simple in the lab is just uh, taking Aurealaria, taking oak seedlings of different species and seeing what their preferences are, if oh. they have any preferences. So that's a bit of a finer scale look at huh. uh, host preference, but it's a really easy experiment to set up. I know that you interviewed someone from Prairie Moon Nurseries recently. Yeah, Caitlin. Yes, they are a great source of seed of several <laughs> native parasite species. And so we get seed from them and we germinate it. We put it with uh, different oak species and see what happens. Oh, that's so cool. In fact, I was just I had a beer last night with, I think, the person that sources those seeds for them. So it comes full circle here today. That is awesome. Yeah, but uh, it's so cool. You're actually cultivating them because that's another question is, you know, these are not things I often see in gardens probably because people aren't thinking about it, but mostly because I don't know how many people are like, let's introduce a parasite. But also, you know, even in restorations, you can broadcast seed them and get them kind of going in a more natural system. But to think about cultivating them, I mean, that to me is super exciting because, yeah, there's a lot of potentially detrimental ones, but I'm sure there's a lot of parasites that are probably in need of like conservation concern, but just would be great additions and a great narrative uh, piece to put in a botanical garden or just a, any garden place where people can see them. So you're actively cultivating these things in captivity. That is so awesome. We're trying. They're tricky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they are tricky for sure. So in the lab, there is one species that I've gotten through its entire life cycle through flowering. Nice. And uh, outside of that one, uh, getting them to germinate isn't too hard. <laughs> getting them to the seedling stage isn't too hard, but to get them to flower is a little bit trickier. However, I do have a colleague who has an oak tree in his yard and has Aurealaria that flowers every year and nice. produces seed. And so it can definitely be done. Sure. But <laughs> they, they take some pampering, and even the ones that can photosynthesize often do better with hosts. Right on. And it just goes to show you again, some of the sensitivity of these relationships and that, you know, we should start thinking about them as, you know, like you said, they're components of the ecosystem. They're doing important things for biodiversity. They're supporting other organisms. We might want to think a little bit more about how do we make sure that parasites don't go extinct? Yeah, absolutely. And there are certainly some that are hard to find. I'm not I'm not totally aware of the conservation status of the ones that are around me in Georgia, but for sure, um, a lot of these wild species are just really important to have in their ecosystems, and some of them are uh, decreasing in number. So they're important to think about. Parasites are not <laughs> always bad. No, no, definitely not. And, you know, when anyone talks about biodiversity, it's generally, in a we need to protect it. And if Parasites are part of that. We need to enter that into the conversation a lot more, which is, you know, why I get to talk to people like you. But I'm going to be a total genetic novice and ask a weird question. So what you said about the genes involved in host recognition, at least those Chi2, you said they're called. Mm -hmm. So, yep. you know, when I read about carnivorous plant research in the genetic world, they find that a lot of those genes that code for carnivorous behavior really got their start. They're, they're defense genes that have just been retooled. Do you have any idea of sort of the genetic origin of like at least the gene groups that you study? Is there any indication that parasitism has its roots in something else, like something inherent about plants that just got retooled or is it kind of de novo or too early to say? 
So in terms of what makes them parasitic or how they evolved parasitism, I don't know. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think that there are certainly genes that are important for the parasitic lifestyle uh, that are going to fall into different categories. So with the CHI2 genes, for example, this is a gene that's found throughout the plant kingdom. It Mm. seems to play an important role in seed germination in at least the model species, Arabidopsis thaliana, which is not a parasite, but it's also a gene that seems to have been duplicated rather often throughout plant evolution. So in that model, Arabidopsis, there is one single CHI2 gene. In some other species, like for example, lots of legume species, uh, cassava, for example, there are extra copies of Kai 2 So it got duplicated hmm. and those duplicates are still in there. And in some cases we know what they're doing in some, they don't, but in the parasites, Kai 2 was duplicated a whole lot. Wow. And some of those duplicates are what evolved to perceive hosts. So gene duplication is really interesting (laughs) as a source of phenotypic novelty, because, you know, whenever you have one gene, it's probably doing something important. And if it mutates, that's probably going to be detrimental to the organism that has it because it's serving some important purpose and you don't want to change it in a way that it can't do that anymore. But when a gene gets duplicated, as long as one copy has its original function, then the others can be freer to pick up these random mutations and maybe nothing beneficial comes of it. But every now and then, maybe something beneficial does. And so for the CHI2 genes that perceive hosts in seed germination, that seems to be what happened. Wow. Remarkable. And just, you know, outside of the mutation side of things being potentially detrimental, I mean, just think about how interesting it is in the span of living things on this planet that gene duplication in and of itself can occur in a way that is non-detrimental to the organism. Because that, if that were to happen in a vertebrate embryo, nope, that would not work. Uh, but plants seem to do it incredibly well. Right. So gene duplication absolutely can be detrimental because genes encode proteins. You have too much of a particular protein and that can be really, really bad. So you're absolutely right. I mean, plants have had their whole genomes duplicated in a lot of cases. (laughs) So we see polyploidy in plants a lot more often than in other organisms. And yeah, this this gene duplication story with Kai 2 is something really interesting that seems to have happened many, many times in plant evolution. Awesome. So many insights and potential questions there. I mean, across the board, and I would guess even within parasitic lineages, like you said, there's so many spectrums of how that dynamic plays out. But, you know, shifting perspectives from parasite to host we've kind of acted like they're completely defenseless in all of this, or at least kind of breezed over the fact that there's another player in the system. And so are there any indications that the hosts have at least some defense against parasitic plants? I mean, maybe not in an agricultural system, so to speak, but in natural systems, are they fighting back? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is yes. And I think that there's still a lot that we don't know about that. But I can talk a little bit about some pieces of that puzzle that I'm aware of. And like I said, there's lots that we still don't know. So first of all, 
in the wild systems, like I said, we do see these obligate holoparasites that are completely dependent on hosts for their sugars and their hosts seem okay. So that isn't direct evidence that the hosts are fighting back, but I think it's an interesting uh, piece of information that points to the fact that maybe these hosts have co-evolved in such a way that they are able to coexist with the parasites mm. rather than be killed by them. But like I said, that's more of a hypothesis of mine. <laughs> So there was a paper recently that looked at a parasitic plant that is wild on the west coast of the United States. It's called Trifasaria versicolor. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those facultative hemiparasites that can live with or without a host. And in this paper, they put the Trifasaria with or without hosts to see what would happen. And they found that when the Trifasaria, the parasite, was given a host, it was more likely to not survive. But if it survived, then it would grow bigger, faster, or do better in some way. So it's kind of this risk versus reward uh, question, which I believe mm. is actually part of the title of the paper. <laughs> but it does suggest that, you know, the host plants are doing something in response to parasitism that is killing the parasite wow. in some cases, presumably. And so there are also certain plants out there that are resistant to parasite infestation or at least less susceptible than other plants why that is isn't totally clear um, there's a pretty cool example of it with orobenki cumana that was the species i was talking about earlier that parasitizes sunflower mm -hmm. so there are varieties of sunflower that are resistant to uh particular lineages or genetic groups of the parasite mm. so we have some groups of sunflower that are resistant to some groups or lineages of the parasite but then there are more virulent groups of the parasite that can overcome that resistance and so it's a very interesting system where we have genetic variation in hosts and parasites there's some resistance on the host side, but then there's some higher virulence on the parasite hmm. side that can overcome that resistance. That's amazing. And when you say varieties of the sunflowers, at least, you mean like cultivated varieties, right? Yes. Wow. Yes. So there's another layer of questions there is like, what's special? What did we breed into those? Yeah. Oh, man, that is <laughs> quite an avenue. Just that in and of itself uh, for research there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with the hosts and the parasites in agricultural systems, there are varieties of crops that are resistant to the parasites. And that resistance can come into play at different stages of the host life cycle. But as far as I know, we're not clear on the details of why resistance comes into play. Right. And I would assume just as we kind of hinted at throughout this entire conversation with the parasites that it's a dynamic thing and, and it could be different for every species depending on who the host is. The flip side is probably equally as true, if not more, in terms of how these plants deal with or even fend off or prevent parasitic infection. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect that there is quite a diversity out there in terms of uh, resistance mechanisms uh, in terms of attack mechanisms for the parasites. So there's a lot left to uncover. Yeah. Oh, I mean, 
this just makes botanizing in an area with parasites so much more interesting because you think of all the possibilities between these interactions, the, the specificity or non-specificity of some of them. I mean, talk about appreciating biodiversity for what it is and then kind of taking that leap into the ecology of all of this. There's so many avenues for people to get hooked, get interested, do research, that sort of stuff. I mean, this is, I could see why this system fascinates you so much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on the genetic side of things, there are so many questions that remain as well, you know, especially for these plants that, for example, are lacking key structures like fully formed leaves or roots. Mm. On the genetic side of things, what has happened to the pathways that control the development of those structures? Are the genes still present? Have they been co-opted for something else? Are they missing? Are they inactive? Lots of cool genetics questions out there to address as well. Definitely. And, you know, I've already heard trickles through different avenues of research of parasites stealing genes from their hosts. So that further weirds out the, the genetic component, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. So horizontal gene transfer is something that seems to happen relatively often with parasitic plants and their hosts, right? So horizontal gene transfer where genes are moving from one organism into another that isn't its own offspring uh, <laughs> is something that we see pretty commonly in bacteria, right? So bacteria are often sharing genetic information with one another, exchanging it with one another. But this is something that we see with parasitic plants from different families. Some of their genes seem to have come from their hosts. And that's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, geez. Lifetimes of research careers uh, ahead of anyone looking to get into this. But Dr. Khan, this has been a wonderful insight into what you do. I mean, where do you see you taking your research in the coming years? I mean, obviously, there's a huge genetic component of this and you have pretty interesting species to start looking at. But what are some of the big questions you're looking to answer over the next few years or so? Yeah, questions of host specificity and host range are always going to get my attention hmm. because I think they have really neat connections with infectious diseases, including ones that are in the news recently, oh, right? Whenever, there is. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> uh, whenever we encounter a new disease, right, it has usually switched from some non-human host into humans. And those questions about host switching, host range, host preference are really fascinating to address in parasitic plants. And they also have connections to how parasites have adapted to agriculture as well. So I'd like to look further at those questions about host range and host preference. Definitely on the genetic side of things, I'm interested in not just what genes are important to the parasitic lifestyle, but how they have evolved mm. over time, not just in parasites, but in closely related non-parasites as well. And I think that those questions can start to get at the heart of how parasitism evolved in the first place in plants, which it did a dozen different times in flower <laughs> and plants, by the way. So there's probably not just one answer there. And then taking my research in a totally different direction, I'm starting to work on chestnut trees now oh. and restoration of American chestnuts. So nice. that's not related to parasitic plants, but it's a fun new research avenue. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, there's paras different forms of parasites everywhere. And just as 
plants. It's not a single origin. It It's across all walks of life. So that is really exciting. And for anyone such as myself that really wants to keep on top of what you're doing, looks forward to everything that's coming out of your lab, where do you recommend they go to find out more and kind of keep a finger on the pulse of your research? Yeah, well, you can absolutely check out my lab website. Cool. It's cconlab.com or c-c-o-n-n lab.com. Um, if you're curious about parasitic plants in general, there are some great review papers out there. There's also the parasitic plant connection that you should Ooh. Google if you want to learn more about parasitic plants and their diversity. I'm on Twitter as well, Caitlin underscore E, Caitlin underscore con, and keep keep looking up parasitic plants, find out which ones are local in your area. So you can look for them when you go outside, because if you're like me, you will get wildly excited when you see them. <laughs> yeah. Especially now that they've listened to this and have a better insight into what's actually going on there. But uh, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for taking time to enlighten us on this subject and really kind of blow the lid off of how dynamic parasitism can be and, and really how important it can be from a lot of different perspectives. So Thank you so much for taking time to do that. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your great questions. And it's been a ton of fun. Well, great. That's what I want to hear. But uh, otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, uh, and happy botanizing slash researching. Uh, keep in touch. You're always welcome back on. Thanks so much. Cheers. All right. That does it for this episode. That was an amazing conversation. There are so many great insights you can gain from Dr. Khan's research, and I highly recommend you go check out all of the links in the show notes for this episode to find out more about her work and the work of all of the wonderful people in her lab. And of course, I thank her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us about it. Before I let you go, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes to Monica. Monica went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they are getting all of the wonderful kickbacks you can get for supporting the show. If you like what you're hearing and you want to ensure that it has a future, consider becoming a patron today. Of course, there are other great ways to support the show, including picking up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, or any of the merch we have available. You can find links to all of those in the show notes as well. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Otherwise, keep tuning back in. As always, there are so many great conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, be good to each other, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.